The biomedical security state stomped on our freedom when COVID hit, but they plan to do much worse. Today's guest tells us all about it from the inside on the special edition of the Doc Washburn Show. Welcome to the Voice of the Resistance with Doc Washburn. We are the show that pushes back against the Uniparty and lets you, let you in on the news that traditional talk radio is all too often afraid to talk about. This is episode 273 of the all-new Doc Washburn Show for Wednesday, November 2nd, 2022. Just so you understand where I'm coming from, I was fired by one of the biggest radio companies in America, Cumulus Media, simply because I refused their vaccine mandate. More evidence comes out all the time that a lot of people are having serious negative reactions to the vaccines. Also, I will never call Joe Biden president because it's obvious the last U.S. presidential election was stolen. I will never pretend a man can become a woman, and I will never forget about the January 6th political prisoners most Republican politicians refuse to even mention. And August 8th, 2022, the day the Biden regime's secret police conducted an unprecedented An unconstitutional raid on the home of a former president of the United States is a day that shall live in infamy. So this is a really different kind of talk show. We're unmasked, uncensored, and unfiltered. If you would like to support what we do, go to our website, docwashburn.com, and click on the button that says Become a Patron. Also, please remember to subscribe to our podcast so you don't miss an episode. Dr. Aaron Cariotti is a psychiatrist and the director of the program in bioethics and American democracy at the Ethics and Public Policy Center in Washington, D.C. He's also the director of the Health and Human Flourishing Program at the Zephyr Institute in Palo Alto, California. He used to teach psychiatry at the University of California, Irvine School of Medicine, where he was the director of the medical ethics program at UCI Health and the chairman of the ethics committee at the California Department of State Hospitals. Dr. Cariotti's work has appeared in the Wall Street Journal, Washington Post, City Journal, and First Things, just to name a few. He also writes regular columns under his own name over at Substack.com. His new book is entitled The New Abnormal, The Rise of the Biomedical Security State. It came out in Regnery just yesterday, and I highly recommend it. In the interest of full disclosure, he could easily be mistaken for my twin, although sadly younger-looking and more handsome. Dr. Cariotti, thank you for coming on the Doc Washburn Show today. How are you? I'm good, Doc. Thanks. It's good to be with you. Thank you so much. Okay, let's start with the title of your book. What is the biomedical security state, and what do you personally find most frightening about it? The biomedical security state is the welding together of, of three different elements. The first is an increasingly militarized public health apparatus. The second is digital technologies of surveillance and control that have been really in place since the invention of the iPhone in 2007. And the third is that uh, these tools are backed by the police powers of the state. So one very concrete example of this, just to wrap your head around it, would be the vaccine passport system that was rolled out in so many jurisdictions during COVID. This idea of showing a QR code to get on a plane, get on a train, uh, go to a restaurant, return to your own country of origin. Prior to the pandemic, in 2018, this would have sounded insane if you would have told people, you're going to have to do this. And what this code demonstrates is that you've done what public health authorities 
have told you to do, including, you know, injecting yourself with a novel uh, gene therapy, uh, uh, most Americans would have looked at you as though you were insane and, you know, insisted that we never would have accepted anything like that. But under the, under the pressure and indeed in the, the emotional and physical toll of lockdowns that extended for more than a year in many jurisdictions, uh, stay-at-home orders, social distancing, masking, people were willing to do whatever it took to get back to normal. And they were willing to accept things that on, under other circumstances they would, uh, they would never have accepted. So the, the purpose of my book, The New Abnormal, is to help people, first of all, understand what happened to us over the last three years. But, but more importantly, it's not so much a retrospective on the pandemic as it is uh, a, a look forward, a look ahead, because this apparatus that, that I am describing in the book, the biomedical security state apparatus, is still in place even if a lot of these policies have been temporarily rolled back. Uh, it's still in place just waiting for the next declared public health crisis. And so we, we have to understand not just sort of what happened to us in recent years and, and the, really the 20-year history of the growth and development of, of the biomedical security state, uh, but we have to also understand what are the next steps in this process going to be so that when those start coming down the pike, we are not caught unawares. We're... Um, we're ready and prepared to collectively stand up and say, no, we're not going to give up any more of our rights and freedoms. We're not going to accept uh, additional measures uh, and methods of surveillance and control that are going to infringe upon our privacy right. and compromise our rights and our freedoms. Uh, well, that's that's extremely important. As we try to look forward and get ready for whatever uh, is coming down the pike next. I mean, would it be helpful to look backwards also? Are there any historical precedents to the biomedical security state that we can learn from to better get ready for whatever is is coming next? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, one of the key issues that I talk about in the book is the legal mechanism which made all of this possible uh, was the declared state of emergency, both at the federal level and uh, in, in many states. So most Americans are not probably aware that we're still operating under a state of emergency for COVID at the federal level, even though President Biden announced a month or so ago in 60 Minutes that the pandemic was over, which was true. It's, it's in fact been over for quite a while now. Uh, many people in his administration, his advisors, kind of panicked and said, no, 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 you can't say that. Because if that's true, then we're going to have to sundown. We're going to have to end the federal state of emergency, which has been renewed to almost no media attention every 90 days. And during this declared state of emergency, the president gains 128 additional uh, extra constitutional powers that he would not otherwise have. Likewise, at the state level here in California, my home state, we're still operating under a state of emergency where the governor accrues additional powers. The same person who declares the state of emergency uh, gains additional powers during the state of emergency. So I, I talk in the book about the need for checks and balances, judicial review, a legislative process uh, of renewing the state of emergency so that the person or the branch of government that gains additional powers uh, does not have 
unilateral control over uh, deciding what constitutes an emergency. No, and that precedent for declared states of emergency to pave the way even for totalitarian regimes. So I want to be clear, whenever you make a a historical analogy to the Third Reich, people sort of freak out and um, say that you're you're fear-mongering or, you know, this is exaggerated. So let me be clear, I'm, I'm comparing neither the current nor the previous administration to Hitler's Nazi regime, but nevertheless, it it remains an undeniable historical fact that the Nazis governed for virtually the entirety of their time in power under Article 48 of the Weimar Constitution, which allowed for the suspension of German laws during a time of emergency, and that quote-unquote emergency uh, was continued for the better part of 12 years. Yeah. So. People forget that Hitler was democratically elected chancellor of Germany. How did he go from a democratically elected official to a totalitarian tyrant? Well, this declared state of emergency was a key legal mechanism uh, that allowed that to happen. Uh, there's other historical precedents from you know the transition from the Roman Empire to the uh, from the Roman Republic to the Roman Empire. Uh, that I cite in the book as well. So, you know, as Mark Twain said, history doesn't repeat itself, but it often rhymes. Amen. Uh, so historical analogies are helpful. We're not going to get exactly the same, you know, uh, process that we saw in Germany in the 1930s. Uh, but we can learn from, certainly learn from the past and, and try to learn from the mistakes of the past so that we avoid repeating them. Absolutely. We're speaking with Dr. Aaron Cariotti. His new book, The New Abnormal, The Rise of the Biomedical Security State, is out now at Regnery. Um, So here's a scary question. Who benefits from the rise of the biomedical security state? So I talked about the way in which uh, the executive branch and executive power is augmented uh, under the state of emergency but we also need to follow not just the dynamics of political power, um, but we also have to follow the money to understand who benefited. And it, it, during the lockdowns, for example, we saw the largest upward transfer of wealth in world history. It was, it was a world historical scheme of, of larceny and theft where the working class and the middle class lost out and uh, and wealth was literally vacuumed upward, not just to the upper class, but to the very tip of the socioeconomic pyramid, to big tech elites uh, and to uh, large multinational, mostly big tech and finance corporations uh, that gained, gained enormous uh, capital during the lockdown. So we know, for example, that Amazon lobbied for lockdowns on the West Coast. Now, is Amazon an expert on public health? What was their interest in this particular public health intervention? Well, when people were locked down and staying at homes, small businesses closed, which eliminated Amazon's competition. And people were forced to do most of their purchasing using e-commerce and and websites like Amazon because, you know, they couldn't go out to to buy things. So Amazon stock soared. Jeff Bezos' personal wealth um, expanded massively. And we saw the same thing across big tech with with Google, right, during lockdowns and school closures, people using Google Classroom, people interacting only on screens, 
uh, massively increase the wealth of the big tech companies. So, uh, so there were people who benefited from the lockdowns, the, you know, the Davos crowd of the, the wealthiest of the wealthy elites, uh, made off quite well, yeah. actually, during the pandemic, while ordinary folks generally uh, lost out in not just losing their jobs, but, you know, losing their small businesses, losing years of schooling, um, you know, losing the opportunity to, to make a living, uh, losing the opportunity to be with loved ones, even loved ones, you know, in their, in their last moments who were dying in our hospitals. Yeah, that, that was just, that was horrifying. That was outrageous. You know, I'm in Little Rock, Arkansas, and a lot of people here looking at California or New York or even Michigan where you couldn't buy seeds at a hardware store think, well, you know, we, we, we got off rather light uh, relatively speaking to these big blue states, and yet even in this state, our supposedly Republican governor um, had his health department coming down hard on small yeah. businesses. Uh, but Walmart, Target, Lowe's, Home Depot, right. uh, yeah. Sam's Club uh, didn't touch those folks. And you know, and, and you look at at the the, the governor of Arkansas's. Uh, COVID Council is advisor group that he put together real quickly, and Walmart was certainly represented there. So, you know, people in Arkansas could still go out, and they could still stop, you know, shop in the big box stores, but obviously those folks benefited too. That's absolutely right. You mentioned in your introduction the the, the Uniparty, and when I launched my Substack newsletter, the tagline was, that the real political divisions today are no longer left, right, liberal, conservative, you know, or even Democrat, Republican. They're between those who are prepared to resist uh, a biomedical surveillance state uh, and those uh, those who will passively accept it. Yeah. And so th- this issue that I talk about in the new abnormal, uh, in this new kind of mode of governance that we've adopted, cuts across political lines. And it's true. Some states were less authoritarian than others and did better than others. But but nowhere in the United States were people free from uh, the reach of uh, of this this novel regime of, yeah. of, of these mechanisms of enormous power over our public and private lives. Now, your, your book talks about the other pandemic of 2020. Uh, yeah. Maybe you could tell my listeners a little bit about that. Yeah, so as lockdowns extended in 2020, um, as a psychiatrist, I was seeing uh, enormous mental health harms from the lockdowns, both in my clinical work, but also looking at the research that was starting to come out, which was confirming what I was seeing clinically. And so I wrote this piece called The Other Pandemic, which um, became a, a chapter or a chapter section in the book describing the some of the massive collateral damage that we saw during the prolonged lockdown. So in the summer of 2020, uh, we saw a tripling of anxiety of, of depressive disorders. We saw quadrupling of anxiety disorders. We saw deaths by drug overdose increase by 30% from, from 70,000 to almost 100,000. Same thing happened with alcohol-related deaths. So we had this, this crisis of, of so-called deaths of despair deaths by suicide, drug, overdose, and alcohol-related illnesses prior to the pandemic. The Surgeon General in 2018 
described an epidemic of loneliness in the United States that was adversely affecting our physical and mental health. And the lockdowns basically poured gasoline on this fire. And those problems disproportionately impacted young people. So the most shocking statistic to come out of this uh, mental health CDC study in the summer of 2020 was that one in 10 Americans had considered seriously considered suicide in the last month. And uh, among college-age students, 18 to 24-year-olds, that, that number was 24%, one in four college-age Americans in the summer of 2020 after prolonged lockdowns and school closures had seriously contemplated suicide. That is a staggering number. And, and in psychiatric epidemiology, you just don't see these kind of massive shifts in numbers from one year to the next. So I was, I was seeing carnage around me, and I, I was trying to draw people's attention to it by describing it as the other pandemic, because public health was, was taking this tunnel vision view of, uh, of health and only looking at one illness. And of course, public health can't be about just one illness. It has to be about the health of the population as a whole. Uh, and yet we adopted uh, measures that, first of all, were untested and unproven. Lockdowns didn't work. They didn't stop the spread of COVID. Uh, they didn't save lives. Uh, instead, they did enormous collateral damage, um, in, including disproportionately impacting the physical and mental health of young people who are not at significant risk from COVID. And so I felt it was important to draw attention uh, to what was not being talked about on the evening news but, you know, was was seriously hurting uh, so many Americans. Uh, I, a young man that I had known really from the time he was born, a very, very good friend of one of my sons, took his own life in, in November of, of 2020, tragically at the age of 17, following the prolonged school closures. Oh, my goodness. And so... I, you know, I was personally impacted by this, obviously professionally impacted as, as well. And I saw so many Americans hurting, but they were being ignored by the medical establishment and by the public health establishment and by the media. Now, at some point in this whole COVID madness, you decided to put your foot down, push back. It cost you your job. Can you describe that process for our listeners? Yeah, so uh, I was involved at the University of California in helping to develop all of our pandemic policies for the entire UC system, not just UC Irvine, the branch campus where I worked, uh, up until the vaccine mandate policy came out. And then our uh, group of, of ethicists and critical care experts who had consulted on all the other policies was not consulted on that policy. And I found that very strange because that was the most ethically problematic and ethically consequential of the policies that we had developed, yet it just came down from on high from the office of the president with uh, no consultation uh, with the internal experts at the university. So I wrote a piece in 2021 in the Wall Street Journal uh, just prior to the university publishing its vaccine mandate, uh, criticizing university vaccine mandates for violating central principles of medical ethics, including the principle of informed consent um, and the right of informed refusal that was articulated in the Nuremberg Code. After the university's policy came out, I saw people getting steamrolled by this policy. 
Uh, I saw people's conscientious objections being steamrolled. I saw people's medical and religious exemptions being arbitrarily denied by the university. And I, I decided I needed to put a stake in the ground. So I challenged the university's vaccine mandate in federal court. I filed a lawsuit, um, a case that, in fact, is still in federal court at the appellate level. But uh, prior to the, the judge deciding the case, the university took swift action. And uh, one year ago yesterday, actually, placed me on uh, unpaid suspension. And then the following month in December, they, they fired me. So uh, that cost me my job. I, I don't regret the decision to do that. I would do it all over again. I think it was the right thing to do. Um, and I'm hoping that ultimately, actually, my case will prevail in federal court and hopefully set a precedent limiting uh, the, uh, the overreach of vaccine mandates for competent adults that should have decision-making authority over their own uh, medical care. So... You know, one of the things about this whole COVID mess is so many policies didn't make sense. And again, in kind of a red state, Arkansas, I still people, I still see people walking out of a grocery store, getting in their cars with masks on their faces in, you know, the fall of 2022. Why did so many people go along with these policies that don't make sense and still, way past the pandemic being over, they still go along with them? We were conditioned by fear. I think that's certainly part of the answer. And we know now uh, that governments deliberately deployed fear um, and and fear-inducing propaganda, using using wartime propaganda techniques and, and so-called psyops techniques uh, developed to, uh, c- you know, control people's emotional reaction to information. Lord Dodsworth and others have documented that this occurred not just under what we would think of as authoritarian regimes like China, but also con- occurred in supposedly open, uh, you know, Western democracies like Great Britain, Canada, and the United States. And then we were conditioned by sort of repeated uh, actions to, to think I'm not safe unless I have this mask on. And just classical behavioral conditioning has been so deeply embedded in, in so many people's uh, behavior and their, their psyches that it's, it's become really hard, for example, to relinquish the mask, even, even though we know now that cloth and surgical masks that people wear uh, outside of hospital settings have no benefit in terms of stopping the spread of a respiratory virus like COVID, uh, no amount of empirical evidence seems to be able to overcome that conditioned response. You know, I have patients telling me, I, 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 don't, I don't know that I will ever be able to you know, go to a theater or go out in public with, without wearing a mask. Yeah. And it's, it's more of, of an emotional response of fear than a rational response to the actual evidence on the efficacy of masks. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. So uh, a few weeks ago, uh, a woman named Janine Small, uh, Pfizer president of international markets, was testifying before the Parliament of the European Union. Uh, Dutch member uh, of the European Parliament, Rob Rose, asked her very specifically, did Pfizer test the vaccine 
to see if there was any efficacy on stopping the transmission of the virus before you rolled yep. it out on the market. And she just yep. kind of chuckled, said, no, we didn't have time. We were moving at the speed of science. Um, is is this admission uh, going to be substantial? Do you think this will change anything in, in the way we try to push back against everything that has gone on? I, I hope that, you know, legally there will be some ramifications. Sure. Well, I certainly hope so. Um, but on the other hand, uh, this this admission was not news. In fact, it's all there in my legal documents from a year ago. Okay. Uh, that, that I described this exactly. That this the original clinical trials were never designed to be able to detect uh, an effect on infection and transmission. The studies were too small. Yeah. Uh, they would have had to have been much larger to even measure that outcome. Um, so it's, I mean, <laughs> after the fact, Pfizer admits what people who had done a careful look at those studies already knew. Um, and one, one of the serious problems that we face right now in terms of our public health agencies is the lack of transparency. So I had to coordinate a group of scientists and physicians to file a FOIA request, a Freedom of Information Act request to the FDA to release the clinical trials data for the Pfizer vaccine, which under federal law they were required to release the day that it was approved. Uh, the FDA came back and said, we'll give you 500 pages a month which, if you do the math, would have taken 75 years to release data that they reviewed in only 108 days. Uh, the judge said no. Uh, you got eight months to release it. Then the FDA came back uh, and said, uh, you know, Pfizer has requested to redact the data before it's released. Uh, the company wants to make decisions about, you know, what information is withheld. And uh, that was not surprising. But what was surprising is the Department of Justice lawyers representing the FDA agreed and petitioned the court to allow Pfizer to redact, redact the data before it was released. Uh, unfortunately, we had a good judge in this case, and the judge again said no to that request. But, you know, it took private citizens at our own expense and trouble um, to basically get the federal government to do what it was required to do under federal law in terms of data transparency. And this is an on, ongoing problem that we've faced throughout the pandemic. So, so people like you and I have lost our jobs uh, be, because we declined a novel intervention whose safety and advocacy data that our government has um, is still not fully available to the public, we have a couple of months left to go uh, to get all of the all of the data. This is a very very serious problem, and uh, you know we can't have informed consent if people are not informed. Uh, so, so yeah, I'm glad that Pfizer made this admission. I don't know why they made the calculated admission when they did, uh, but the fact is, uh, the people who were paying attention knew this a long time ago. And yeah. uh, we were trying to draw people's attention to it. Um, but, uh, you know, it was really hard to get anyone to listen. Absolutely. I know you got to run. Let me ask you one more question. Um, perhaps one of the most crucial at this point. What can every day concerned citizens do to resist and defeat uh, the ever encroaching biomedical security state? So, 
I, I talk about several things in the last chapter of the book um, that, that attempt to answer that question. I'll mention just a few of them here. Uh, the first is we need to recognize the next steps coming down the pike and reject them. So I describe uh, that there's going to be a push, already is a push, for digital IDs tied to biometric data like your iris scan, your facial scan, your fingerprint. Uh, and those are going to be tied into central bank digital currencies, which we need to dis distinguish from decentralized cryptocurrencies like bit Bitcoin. Central bank digital currencies will allow the government uh, to basically track all of our financial transactions and utilize carrots and sticks to kind of control our behavior and our purchasing power. Um, so these two elements and uh, the other things that are going to be attached uh, to to them, which I describe in the book, we have to stand up and collect, collectively say no. These will be sold um, uh, on the basis of convenience, and you know there'll be a kind of velvet glove approach to get people to adopt them. But I, I think we need to be very wary of these things, and um, you know not not move in the direction of a cashless society, not move in the direction of having all kinds of private information, including health-related information, uh, available in this digital cloud and tied to our digital ID uh, that will allow government and other private entities access to that personal information. Um, at a more basic level, I, I think people need to uh, over, we need to overcome our fear. <laughs> we need to insist on the, the right of assembly and the right to gather in face-to-face -face, uh, ways and refuse to allow that right to be take, taken away from us. Again, lockdowns, stay-at-home orders uh, are not measures that are useful in controlling a pandemic, um, but even if they were, the, the collateral harms far outweigh any potential benefits. So just gathering in small groups face-to-face, -face, um, you know, to, uh, to, to reconnect with one another and connect with one another in, in a way that doesn't require us to be behind a screen <laughs> where, you know, the control of information on our social media feed um, and, and the flow of information is, is controlled by public and private actors who may not have our best interests in mind. Uh, and the final thing I would suggest people is is to stop self-censoring, right? What's really dangerous is when people internalize uh, some of the prohibitions um, and stop asking questions. So begin again to trust your judgment. Uh, begin again to uh, to catch yourself when you're self-censoring, um, and 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 go ahead and and bravely say what you think. So. Uh, you may not be an expert in epidemiology. You may not be an expert in virology, but you're still a person with common sense. You're, you're still a person with, um, you know, with a, a rationality that we all share. You can spot a logical contradiction. You can see uh, what you could see when a conclusion doesn't follow from, you know, certain premises. You could see when a public health policy is just obviously nonsensical. Right? It, it's it's absurd to walk into a restaurant and be required to wear a mask while you're standing, but then be permitted to take off the mask when you sit down. So just a collective refusal to engage in these kind of absurd theatrics that, that everyone knows make absolutely no, no sense. Um, 
you know, I think that's that's really important to recover our ability to think for ourselves and to govern ourselves and to refuse to to be bullied um, by people asking us to do patently absurd things. Yeah. That you know, you don't have to be a scientist to know that this just absolutely makes no sense. Hey, Amen. And, and of course. Uh, the elephant in the living room here about pushing back against, say, as you mentioned, the universal imposition of digital currency is that voters in the United States are going to have to contact uh, not only their state legislators, but their members of Congress and say, look, you you, you got to vote against this. you got to push back against this. Right. We're not just going to lay That's down right. and accept it. Yep. yep. That's right. So – um, yeah, there is a uniparty out there, but yeah. uh, some candidates are better on these issues than others. Oh, yeah. Certainly, and, and many many candidates next week are running on 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 some of these issues. So you know, pay attention, get out there and vote, uh, put pressure on legislators. You know, um, become more politically engaged in the fight. Um, you know, the more ordinary people do that, uh, the the more we're going to be able to resist the advance of the biomedical security regime. Absolutely. Dr. Aaron Cariotti, that's K-H-E-R-I-A-T-Y, and his columns are available over at substack.com under his name. But the new book is called The New Abnormal, The Rise of the Biomedical Security State. It just came out yesterday on Regnery. Uh, Dr. Cariotti, it is an honor to have you on the program today. We we wish you Godspeed, and as we say here in the South, y'all come see us. <laughs> I'll, I'll do that. I'd be happy to come back, uh, Doc. Thanks. I enjoyed the conversation very much. God bless you, sir. Have a great day. Thank you. You too. Wow. That's a lot to chew on. Um, you know, I'm reminded. I'm reminded. I can't get into too much detail here, but... Um, at one point in the height of all this going on, there was a uh, a producer slash researcher slash reporter for a major television network, which will go unnamed, who had come to Little Rock uh, to meet with me about the possibility of interviewing me along with a lot of other people on a uh, a story that she was working on in Arkansas. And we met at a restaurant. And she dutifully wore her mask from the door to walking in. We sat down at the table. She took her mask off. If she had to get up and, and, and go refill her drink or get condiments or whatever, she would put the mask on while she was walking to wherever it was in the restaurant or walking back to the table, then she would take the mask off. And this is a person with a college education, very intelligent, very well educated, but followed followed the rules, followed the directions of the deep state to AT as if it made any difference. And I just I marveled. I marveled. But you know, you can't fight back when you're in that mindset. Um anyway, um So get out of that mindset. Again, we want to thank our friends, our advertisers, for making it possible for us to do what we do here day in and day out now into our second year on the Doc Washburn Show. 
One of them is RedRiverYourWay.com. If you tried to buy a car recently, you may realize there's such a chip shortage. You may have a hard time finding what you're looking for. People I know have actually bought vehicles from hundreds of miles away from where they live. That's where Red River Your Way comes in. Red River Your Way is a big old car dealership in in the middle of the USA that believes in freedom, the freedom to buy a car, truck, van, or SUV the way you want to. You can buy online, and they will drive it to you no matter where you are. Red River Your Way wants to make your car buying experience as easy and transparent as possible. That's why they have added technology to their website that puts you in complete control of your payment options and allows you to complete the entire purchase process online. But don't worry. Red River experts are still here to help you every step of the way if you have any questions. Red River makes it so easy. As you browse their selection, you'll see each vehicle has a button on it entitled Explore Payment Options. Clicking that button guides you through a few easy questions that then create personalized payment options you have complete control over. All you have to do is adjust your preferences, and all the math happens automatically so you can figure out what monthly payment works best for your budget. Red River Your Way makes car buying online easy. Your whole car buying process is completely transparent. If you want to buy a car, truck, van, or SUV, order online from the nationwide car dealer that believes in freedom, the dealer that will deliver your vehicle to your front door no matter where you live. RedRiverYourWay.com. You will be glad you did. We appreciate Mitch Ward at Red River Your Way for making it possible for us to share this message with you. All right, now, our main priority in life should be to glorify God in everything that we do. And one great way to do that, in my humble opinion, is to stop paying money to big, woke corporations that, in turn, give a lot of money to causes that we would find to be horrific One way to do that is to go with Patriot Mobile. They are America's only Christian conservative wireless carrier. Now more than ever, it's important to band together and support companies that actually share our conservative values. Patriot Mobile donates a portion of every dollar earned to organizations that fight for causes that we actually care about. Patriot Mobile has exceptional nationwide coverage and uses the same towers the main carriers use. Patriot Mobile has plans to fit any budget, along with great discounts for our veteran and first responder heroes, as well as multi-line users. When you switch to Patriot Mobile, you are shifting your support from the leftist propaganda and the leftist progressive agendas of Big Mobile to the Christian conservative causes of Patriot Mobile. When you become a Patriot Mobile member, your dollars are helping to fund our God-given right to freedom. A portion of every dollar they earn is given back to the causes that support organizations that fight for First Amendment religious freedom, freedom of speech, Second Amendment right to bear arms, sanctity of life, and the needs of our veterans and first responders. Switching is easy. Just go to PatriotMobile.com or call their U.S.-based customer service team at 972-PATRIOT. Make sure you use promo code DOC, that's D-O-C, for free activation. Now, Patriot Mobile also now offers competitive business plans to suit companies of any size. If you're a conservative-owned business, tired of seeing your hard-earned dollars go to corporate woke agendas, switch to Patriot Mobile Business. 
Learn more at business.patriotmobile.com or call their 100% U.S.-based member services team at 469-FREEDOM. Again, use promo code DOC, D-O-C, for free activation. That's business.patriotmobile.com or call 469-FREEDOM. All right, now, following up from our interview of Dr. Cariotti about the COVID madness, John Schindler has an op-ed Washington Examiner today entitled, The Department of Homeland Security Has Betrayed Its Constitutional Obligations. And he says there are few terms more calculated to cause a political ruckus than the term deep state. Since the start of Donald Trump's presidency almost six years ago, the term deep state has been a catchphrase for anything connected with the U.S. government that is opposed to Republicans. For a few reasons, he says, I broadly oppose the use of the term. He says, but now we have incontrovertible evidence that since Joe Biden took office almost two years ago, powerful federal agencies have acted in exactly the manner that many Republicans feared. They have colluded with Democrats and big tech companies against free speech and conservative interests. Along comes the intercept of all entities, the intercept, with a genuine bombshell report about how the Department of Homeland Security has been working behind the scenes with big tech, preeminently Twitter and Facebook, to control content. Put another way, to censor Social media postings. The Intercept's report is detailed and based on U.S. government documents. Nobody in Washington is saying it's not true. Facebook even created a special portal for DHS and other government partners to report disinformation directly to have it shut down immediately. What did the Biden administration want? Censored? According to the report, the DHS is worried about issues like the origins of the COVID-19 pandemic, and the efficacy of COVID-19 vaccines, racial justice, U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan, and the nature of U.S. support to Ukraine. While anyone concerned about civil liberties should be troubled by the DHS, which is fundamentally a law enforcement entity colluding with big tech to censor speech, If the disinformation is foreign in origin, that's one thing. Except that's not what we're talking about here. As soon as Biden entered the Oval Office, the emphasis on foreign disinformation shifted to what the federal bureaucracy now terms misinformation, disinformation, and malformation, which clearly encompasses the constitutionally protected free speech of the American public. That is what the DHS is trying to censor. He says, I'm no lawyer, but that doesn't sound constitutional to me. We went through this a few months ago when DHS announced its disinformation governance board, set to be led by a Democratic troll to censor domestic speech online. As this column pointed out last spring, that effort was undemocratic and unconstitutional. To be clear, There's already an agency inside the federal government to tackle foreign disinformation, and that is the Global Engagement Center inside the State Department. There has never been any federal office 
to shut down domestic information. For good reason. This is America, and that is illegal. The DHS had that bumbling effort blow up in its face amid public outcry, and the board was quietly disbanded. Except that it now seems clear the Biden administration attempted to do the same thing again in an end run as The Intercept has just exposed. It gets worse. The report elaborates that DHS this spring advocated employing third-party, nonprofit groups as a clearinghouse for information to avoid the appearance of government propaganda. That's what is called a cutout in the spy trade, the use of a deniable intermediary. Biden's DHS wanted to use ostensibly private cutouts to spread political propaganda approved by the White House, paid for with taxpayer money. That sounds more like East Germany than America. I've been countering disinformation, mainly Russian, since the 1990s, and the line between foreign lies and domestic views was always clear inside the Beltway, at least until Biden entered the White House. What's been going on in Washington is illegal and un-American. It needs thorough exposure. In the new year, when the House of Representatives is likely to be in Republican hands, what DHS and other federal agencies have been up to needs a full investigation. We are fortunate that the DHS bureaucrats who are colluding with big tech against Republicans and anyone who doesn't follow the Democrat Party line were foolish enough to write their wacky, unconstitutional ideas down in unclassified memos where reporters could find them. Biden's deep state is thankfully inept. On cue, the legacy media is ignoring the Intercept's bombshell report since it's not the narrative they want, particularly just a few days away from the midterm elections. Still, dear journalists who have pontificated for years about how democracy dies in darkness, here's your chance to stand up for free speech and keeping the government away from our cherished values. Now, that is John R. Schindler, who served with the National Security Agency as a senior intelligence analyst and counterintelligence officer in today's Washington Examiner with his op-ed entitled The Department of Homeland Security Has Betrayed Its Constitutional Obligations. Now, you may have heard about the report he's talking about, but I don't know if you've heard about this. Edward Ring over at American Greatness amgreatness.com. Edward Ring, senior fellow of the Center for American Greatness, also a contributing editor and senior fellow with the California Policy Center, which he co-founded in 2013. This new article he's got at amgreatness.com entitled, Unexplained Excess Deaths Are on the Rise. Are you ready for this? By a significant margin, and according to data reported weekly by the U.S. Centers for Disease Control, the death rate in America remains elevated. If nothing else is certain, as Americans continue to cope with the most disruptive event in the last half century, one fact is indisputable, as the number of cases of COVID-19 decreased over the past few months, they now account for less than half of this persistently elevated death rate. In the six years before the COVID era, deaths in the United States 
averaged between 2.6 and 2.8 million people per year. These averages are adjusted for population growth, and with a population as large as that of the United States, the numbers should be and are remarkably stable. During the three years immediately preceding 2020, for example, the population growth adjusted death rate from all causes vary by only 1.5%. None of that is true today. The increase in total deaths, deaths from all causes, not just COVID deaths, is up significantly. In the nine months in 2020 from April to December, a normal death count would have been 2.04 million. Instead, during that period, 2.57 million people died, 26% above normal. Deaths in the United States from all causes in 2021 were also well above normal, 3.46 million versus only 2.8 million if it had been a normal year, 24% over normal. So far in 2022, with complete data available only through August, total deaths were 1.91 million against a projected 2.21 million if it were a normal year, which is still up 16%. These numbers are shown graphically on a chart that he put here in the article. And I commend the article to you again, This is unexplained excess deaths are on the rise over at amgreatness.com. To put these overages in perspective, in recent decades before COVID came along, a very bad flu season would mean an increase in total deaths, but typically not much more than the usual increases every flu season. This can be seen in the chart where the normal multi-year average rises to a peak of around 60,000 total deaths per week, during the worst of flu season in January, then descends to around 50,000 per week in midsummer. Even the H1N1 virus didn't have a significant overall impact. Between 2009 and 2010, the CDC estimates around 12,500 Americans died from H1N1. That represents not quite a half a percent increase in total deaths. While it is encouraging the total excess deaths in the U.S., during 2022 so far, are only up 16% compared to 24% in 2021 and 26% in the last nine months of 2020. They are still well above anything we have seen in the United States in the last 100 years. But more troubling is the fact that according to the CDC's own data, most of these excess deaths cannot be attributed to COVID. So he's got another chart in which a blue line plots the number of excess deaths over the past two and a half years. The gray line plots how many of those excess deaths are attributable to COVID, and the gray line is consistently below the blue line. Breaking this down to numbers reveals the following percentages of unexplained excess deaths. During the first nine months of the pandemic through December 2020, 32% of excess deaths were not reported as COVID deaths. During 2022, 29% of excess deaths were not reported as COVID deaths. And through the first eight months of 2022, 32% of excess deaths are unexplained by COVID. The most recent data are not encouraging. For the two most recent months for which we have complete data from the CDC, July and August 2022, 57% of excess deaths are not explained by COVID. These numbers cannot be dismissed. The sample sizes are way too big. 
In July and August of this year, almost 27,000 people were reported dead from COVID. But during the same two months, almost 63,000 more people died than should have died in a normal July and August. What can account for this? Overall, since the COVID-19 pandemic began, from April 2020 through August 2022, the CDC reported a little over a million COVID-related deaths. But so-called excess deaths during that period, even when adjusted, adjusting for population growth, are one and a half million. That means there are half million excess deaths in the United States that are unaccounted for. The usual suspects do not add up to that many. For example, suicides increased from about 46,000 to a little over 47,500 from 2020 to 2021. But there were over 48,000 suicides reported in 2018, two years before the pandemic. So that was a little bit more in 2021. Murders were up 30% in 2020 versus 2019, then up by another 6% in 2021. Those are alarming trends, but they only account for about 7,000 excess homicides over pre-COVID averages. Deaths from drug overdoses are way up. Over 22,000 more in 2021 compared to 2020, with 2020 drug overdoses of about 8,000 over 2019. Automobile fatalities were up by 4,000 in 2021 compared to 2020. All of this is alarming, but numerically they do not explain what we're seeing. Deaths from suicides, murders, drug overdoses, and automobile fatalities all combined and over the past two and a half years may account for as many as 100,000 of the 500,000 unexplained excess deaths in the U.S., and that's being generous. What has killed the other 400,000 Americans during the COVID era since we know it wasn't COVID? One suggestion, easily debunked, is that we have an aging population. It's true our population is aging, but this still doesn't explain the excess deaths. If you view what is known as a population pyramid for the United States as of 2021, he's got another chart. At the top, you'll see that America's senior citizens plotted by age form a fairly smooth downward slope. But there is a blip on the slope seen for men and women aged 75, in other words, born in 1946 in the first wave of the baby boom. How significant is this bulge? in the slope since people born in that year are nearing the end of the average life expectancy. As it is among Americans still living, about 890,000 more were born in 1946 than were born in 1945. It's possible because people born immediately after World War II are just now beginning to pass through the years when they are most likely to die of natural causes, we'll see higher overall death rates than we have seen in the years 2013 through 2019, a period during which death rates in the United States were stable from year to year. But wouldn't COVID have finished them off even if people approaching the ends of their lifespans are more numerous than usual? America's current age demographics may explain a small and temporary increase in the death rate in America today. But since only a small percentage of Americans actually die in the year corresponding to the average lifespan for their birth year cohort, it is not a significant factor contributing to excess non-COVID deaths. 
Other possible causes of excess deaths in the United States have been explored elsewhere and remain difficult to quantify. Clearly, there are increased incidents of disease fatalities that are the result of deferred diagnosis and deferred treatment during the pandemic. But even with access to complete data, any honest assessment would have to acknowledge many subjective assumptions and present a wide range of possible answers. The elephant in the room, of course, is the new vaccines and to what extent excess deaths can be attributed to adverse events caused by hundreds of millions of Americans receiving multiple COVID shots. Data from the Vaccine Adverse Event Reporting System, the VAERS website. Do not indicate nearly enough fatalities from the COVID shot to begin to explain a half million non-COVID disease deaths in the past two years, but those numbers are widely disputed. Without diving into that rabbit hole, it is sufficient to say excess deaths in the United States that aren't caused by COVID might be primarily the sum of increases in suicides, murders, car accidents, drug overdoses, a disproportionately large number of 1946 baby boomer babies reaching the limit of their life expectancy and deferred diagnoses and deferred treatment, or it might be something else. Regardless of why, the percentage of excess deaths that remain unexplained by COVID has doubled in the past few months and now accounts for two out of three excess deaths. This bears close watching as life in the time of COVID goes on and on and on. That is the great Edward Ring over at amgreatness.com. The article entitled, Unexplained Excess Deaths Are on the Rise. Wow. Okay, once again, once again, we are thankful to our advertisers, our friends, including Arkansas Upper Cervical Center, Doctors J.R. Crabtree and his wife, Tanya Crabtree, our friends, our doctors, and our advertisers who help make it possible for us to do what we do here on a regular basis. So let me ask you, are you having problems with sinuses and allergies? Are you experiencing dizziness, vertigo, psoriasis, problems with your blood sugar, even migraines? The Arkansas Cervical Center might be able to help you. Let me tell you how. Your skull weighs anywhere from 8 to 15 pounds. It rests on the top bone of your spinal column, the atlas, which only weighs two ounces. So it's really easy for your atlas to get out of alignment. If it does, your whole spinal column can get kinked up like a chain. When that happens, your central nervous system isn't able to communicate with the rest of your body as it is designed to do. I had severe hay fever for five or six weeks every spring all my life. When I got my atlas adjusted, the hay fever went away, and it has never come back. I was shocked. I was flabbergasted. Also, happily, the migraines went away and didn't come back. Again, if you're suffering from sinus conditions, allergy, vertigo, psoriasis, problems with your blood sugar, even migraines, do yourself a favor. 
Call my friends at Arkansas Upper Cervical Center, 501-279-2009, for a free consultation. They have helped me. They've helped my wife. They've helped so many people we know. Please call them to see if they can help you. That number again for your free consultation is 501-279-2009. Now, if you're outside central Arkansas and you're thinking, man, that might be what I need, go to their website, turnmypoweron.com, and click on the button that says, Find a doctor near you, and I sure hope you can. All right, it's about that time. Hit it, Brian. We interrupt this program to bring you a special report. It's the Doc Washburn Show Tweet of the Day. Brought to you by RedRiverYourWay.com. Red River Your Way, the big old car dealership in the middle of the USA that believes in freedom, including your freedom to buy the car, truck, van, or SUV of your choice the way you want to online and have it delivered to your front door anywhere in the continental United States. Okay, today's tweet of the day is a thread of tweets by a gentleman named Mike Riccardi. He is one of the pastors at Grace Community Church in Southern California. And he has some quotes here from a great theologian of yore named Horatius Bonar. And he says, faith is not our physician. It only brings us to the physician. It is not even our medicine. It only administers the medicine, divinely prepared by him who healeth all our diseases. In all our believing, let us remember God's word to Israel when he said, I am Jehovah that healeth thee, Exodus fourteen twenty six. Our faith is but our touching Jesus. And what is even this in reality but his touching us? Faith is not our Savior. It was not faith that was born at Bethlehem and died on Golgotha for us. It was not faith that loved us and gave itself for us, that bore our sins in its own body on the tree, that died and rose again for our sins. Faith is one thing, the Savior is another. Faith is one thing, and the cross is another. Let us not confound them, nor ascribe to a poor, imperfect act of man that which belongs exclusively to the Son of the living God. Faith is not perfection, yet only by perfection can we be saved, either our own or another's. That which is imperfect cannot justify, and an imperfect faith could not in any sense be a righteousness. If it is to justify, it must be perfect. It must be like the lamb without blemish and without spot. An imperfect faith may connect us with the perfection of another, but it cannot of itself do aught for us, either in protecting us from wrath or securing the divine acquittal. All faith here is imperfect, and our security is this, 
that it matters not how poor or weak our faith may be. If it touches the perfect one, all is well. The touch draws out the virtue that is in him, and we are saved. The slightest imperfection in our faith, if faith were our righteousness, would be fatal to every hope. But the imperfection of our faith, however great, if faith be but the approximation of contact between us and the fullness of the substitute, is no hindrance to our participation of his righteousness. God has asked and provided a perfect righteousness. He nowhere asks nor expects a perfect faith. And earthenware pitcher can convey water to a traveler's thirsty lips as well as one of gold. Nay, a broken vessel, even if there be but uh, assured to take water from the pit, as we're told in Isaiah thirty fourteen, will suffice. So a feeble, very feeble faith will connect us with the righteousness of the Son of God, the faith, perhaps, that can only cry, Lord, I believe, help mine unbelief. Faith is not satisfaction to God. In no sense and in no aspect can faith be said to satisfy God or to satisfy the law. Yet if it is to be our righteousness, it must satisfy. Being imperfect, it cannot satisfy. Being human, it cannot satisfy, even though it were perfect. That which satisfies must be capable of bearing our guilt, and that which bears our guilt must be not only perfect but divine. It is a sin-bearer that we need, and our faith cannot be a sin-bearer. Faith can expiate no guilt, can accomplish no propitiation, can pay no penalty, can wash away no stain, can provide no righteousness. It brings us to the cross where there is expiation and propitiation and payment and cleansing and righteousness. But in itself, faith has no merit and no virtue. Faith is not Christ nor the cross of Christ. Faith is not the blood, nor the sacrifice. It is not the altar, nor the laver, nor the mercy seat, nor the incense. It does not work, but accepts a work done ages ago. It does not wash, but leads us to the fountain open for sin and uncleanness. It does not create. It merely links us to that new thing which was created when the everlasting righteousness was brought in, to quote Daniel nine twenty four, And as faith goes on, so it continues. Always the beggar's outstretched hand, never the rich man's gold, always the cable, never the anchor, the knocker, not the door or the palace or the table, the handmaid, nor the mistress, the lattice which lets in light, not the sun. That's amazing. That is remarkable. And that is our tweet of the day from Mike Renardi, one of the pastors of Grace Community Church in Southern California, quoting Horatius Bonar, 
who lived from 1808 to 1889. He was a Scottish churchman and poet, principally remembered as someone who wrote many, many hymns. I'm sure if he could write that eloquently about faith and what it is and what it isn't, that he wrote another great many works which we would be edified by looking into. Thanks again to Mitch Ward and RedRiverYourWay.com for sponsoring the Tweet of the Day. You've been listening to Episode 273 of the all-new Doc Washburn Show. The views and opinions expressed on the Doc Washburn Show do not necessarily reflect those of our advertisers, but they love us and we love them. Today's program has been produced by Tim Terrible, directed by Mick Messy. This has been a terribly messy production. Portions of today's show will be taken overseas and dropped. If you'd like a transcript of today's episode of the all-new Doc Washburn Show, simply peel the roof off a Rolls-Royce panel truck and send it to Mansour's Computer Solutions, 7th floor of the Ephemeral B. Smoot Building, Whitehall, Arkansas, in care of Sheriff Mansour Sempier the Tenth. And that's the way it is. Wednesday, November 2nd, 2022.